As we reach uh, the end here of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, he's getting more and more practical. So if you're new, you haven't been with us, or you just uh, haven't ever studied the book of Galatians before, Galatians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it was a circulating letter. It was targeted towards not just one church, but a bunch of churches in this area called Galatia, which would be in modern-day Turkey. And he sends this letter to them because what had happened is in these churches, people came to faith in Jesus Christ. They trusted him in his grace. And then another group of people showed up from Jerusalem, uh, the Judaizers, as they're often called, who came in and said, you know, that's great you've trusted Jesus, but that's not enough to be pleasing to God. You also have to basically become Jewish. So become a Christian, but also become Jewish. And they had to, you know, if you're really going to be a Christian, you also have to keep all of the Mosaic law. And Paul just says, hold on. No, no, no. It's, it's grace alone. Grace is God's favor that's freely bestowed. I don't do anything to earn it. It's, it's given freely. And he's writing this to these churches in this area, correcting uh, what they had gotten wrong and been taught wrong by this group that had come in. And as he gets to the end of his letter, he's giving out some really practical advice for what that looks like in their day-to-day lives. Um, This is like most of his letters. They often end with just some practical instruction. Well, today we're going to see Paul talking about how the gospel relates to uh, our interactions with one another. And how living out the gospel uh, is important and understanding the truth of of Jesus' grace to you, how that's important in how we treat one another, and quite honestly, how we think about ourselves in relationship to other people. Uh, Now you notice, I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 26 today. It's the end of chapter 5. And just as a a quick little rabbit trail here, uh, do you ever wonder where the chapters and verse numbers come from in your Bible? Did you know that they don't exist in Greek? Like they were added later. In fact, I, I, uh, I wrote some of this down just to help you. In AD 1227, there was a guy, uh, Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wanted to make it easier for people to find, find their ways around the Bible. And so he started dividing it all up into chapters. And so uh, in 1227 then, uh, the first Bible to be published, it was, in, was about 100 years later, the Wycliffe Bible in the 1300s, that used this chapter pattern to find your way through the Bible. It just makes it easier to skip around and find where you're at, right? Well, uh, then another guy, uh, a couple hundred years later, decided, you know what? Some of these chapters are really long. Like, it'd, it'd be even more helpful uh, if I could, like, divide it into pieces of a chapter, And so he started adding verse numbers in the 1500s. It actually started with the Old Testament with a Jewish rabbi in 1448, a guy by the name of Nathan. But then 100 years later in 1555, uh, Robert uh, Estine, also known as Stephanus, is the first one to add numbers to the New Testament. And then he took the Old Testament numbers from Nathan and put them in there. And ever since uh, the Geneva Bible was published, we've had chapter numbers and verse numbers in your Bible to help you find your way around. They're just little tools. Well, for the most part, they're really helpful. But occasionally, they put a chapter or a verse number right in the middle of a thought. And that's the case here, in my opinion. I really believe chapter 6 of Galatians should start at verse 26 of chapter 5. That verse 26 of chapter 5 really relates to those first 10 verses of chapter 6. And that that's really a better dividing point in Paul's thought. So just as that little aside, if you're wondering, uh, why did I choose to start there? That's why. Let me read through the text. 
then we'll pray, we'll unpack it, and see what God has for us this morning. Sound good? All right, let me, let me read. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and we're going to try to unpack this together and see what uh, the Spirit has for us today. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Thanks for your word. Um, Holy Spirit, I, I thank you that you choose to use me to teach your word and uh, uh, to lead people. And uh, would you uh, continue to work through me and in me, even teach me as I teach today? Um, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would uh, lie to us and uh, cause us to doubt the truth of your word, cause us to uh, turn back to our own uh, self-righteousness and uh, just ignore your grace. So I pray against him as the servants, their works and effects, and Jesus instead, by your spirit, would you teach us and change us. Let my words be your own. Let them be clear. Let us leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul starts out this morning uh, in verse 26, let us not become conceited. You know, last week we ended in verse 25, Paul saying that we ought to keep in step with the Spirit. Remember that? We're to walk in a way that's in line with and in step with the Spirit. We talked about there's kind of three pieces to doing that. First, you've got to remember that you belong to Jesus, that you're his, that that's your identity. And your activity flows from that. And then second, you need to start to identify some of the idols in your life and tear them down. So that, that, the, that you would live a life honoring to Jesus and walking with his spirit and keeping in step then with his spirit. Well, today he talks with us about how keeping in step with the spirit will transform our relationships. And, and primarily it means we will not become conceited. Look at what he says. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word conceited, do you know what it means? It means to be excessively proud of yourself, to be vain. To be conceited is just like uh, puffed up with, with all kinds of pride in yourself. The Greek word here literally means vainglorious or empty of honor. So to be conceited is to seek glory and honor for yourself. Look at me, look how cool I am. You're trying to build yourself up in your own eyes and in the eyes of other people. Um, 
the, the King James Version, uh, this is one of the cases where I really appreciate the King James translation because uh, it translates it literally. It says, uh, do not be desirous of vain glory. I just think that's a really good statement, isn't it? To not desire vain glory. What's vain glory? Well, it's glory that's about you and not about Jesus. It's, in, it's, it's vain. It's vanity. It's, it's empty honor. And, and Paul goes on. He says, um, th- this conceit works, it way out, works itself out in a couple ways, provoking one another and envying one another. But ultimately, conceit then is just this deep insecurity where I, I, I perceive I don't have the glory. I don't receive the honor that I ought to receive and ought to have. And it leads me to try to prove myself to other people. And it fixes my mind on comparing myself with other people. Do you have that experience? See, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the teaching of the whole book of Galatians, right? Like these religious people come in and they're like, no, it's not enough to just trust Jesus and find your identity in him. You actually have to work out, or not work out, but work for your salvation and work for God's favor and for his grace. And so what that results in, basically that's insecurity in who Jesus says you are. And and it results in us constantly comparing ourselves to one another and and constantly trying to to get up to this this mark of of good deeds that in our eyes seems like, oh, that's good enough. God will finally love me there. But in reality, it's never good enough. And it's never enough. And we become conceited as we compare ourselves towards other people. It's vain glory. It's vain glory. See, the the thing is that... um, when, when we're conceited, we, uh, we long to have honor and glory for ourselves. And so a couple things we do, we provoke one another. That word provoke um, literally means like uh, competition or uh, to get into a contest with someone else. So when I have this sense of superiority in my life, I, I, I provoke other people out of my conceit. And I do it with all my good works or with uh, whatever else it is. And I just, I look down on other people. That's, a, that's what somebody who's conceited and they begin to provoke. If they have a really like a superiority complex, like, like that's what they're doing. They're provoking others. They try to show their superiority to them. But then also we envy one another. On the flip side of that, maybe like you just have this really low self-esteem. We're always envying. We're always looking instead of down up at other people. We're like, man, if I could just be like them, if I could just have their gift, if I could just fill in the blank. And we envy what they have. Or worse yet, we don't want them to have what they have. That's an even worse form of envy. But, but both of them, see, again, provoking comes from superiority, envy from inferiority, but both of them are forms of conceit. Why is that? Well, because both the superior person and the inferior person, the one with the, the big ego and the superiority complex, and uh, the one who's over here who's just always, you know, Eeyore complex, oh, woe is me. Uh, both of them are insecure in who they are. Both of them, uh, it, it's a form of conceit, both of them are self-absorbed. Conceit is when I'm uh, excessively proud. And a lot of times we only think of pride in terms of the person with the big personality, the big ego, uh, the, you know, the one who lords it over everyone. But did you realize that the person who seeks a false sense of humility or who always is just bashing themselves or whatever else, that that's just as much pride as the one with the big ego? 
because both of them are self-absorbed. The one is provoking, one is envying. And Paul says they're both a form of conceit. Both the superior and the inferior person are trying to gain worth through competition. The only difference is that the inferior person has lost the battle. (laughs) You know, uh, humility, on the other hand, is knowing your place. Uh, As C.S. Lewis pointed out, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Like sometimes we try to think and beat ourselves up in that way. That's still just pride and conceit. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's true humility. And and Paul's telling us not to be conceited, not to provoke and not to envy. Now the reality is what I've I've found and really what's occurred to me even as I've studied this passage throughout the week, I I think all of us, we we tend to to lean one way or the other, don't we? Uh, Because this is something that we, we need a dose of the gospel to cure this the conceit and pride in our lives on a daily basis. And some of us, when we get puffed up with pride, we tend to lean towards this uh, superiority complex side, right? Others of us lean towards this, uh, instead of provoking, envying, and kind of woe is me, and always comparing ourselves up to someone else and and negating who we are in Christ. Uh, Tim Keller wrote about some of this, and he has some good questions to analyze for yourself, maybe which one your default is in your sin when you, when you struggle with pride. He said, you might ask some of these questions. Uh, do I have a tendency to blow up or a tendency to clam up when faced with confrontation? If I blow up, I probably have the superiority complex. If I clam up, I'm probably more struggle with envying other people. Do I tend to pick arguments with people or do I completely avoid confrontation? Do I tend to get very down on people or groups of people or am I often embarrassed and intimidated around certain classes or kinds of people? When criticized, do I get very angry and judgmental and simply attack right back? Or do I get very discouraged and defensive and make lots of excuses and give in right away? Do I often think, uh, I would never, ever, ever do what that person's done? Or uh, do I often look at people and say, I could never, ever, ever accomplish what that person has done? Do you fall into one of those camps? By nature, most of us do. I'll be honest, for me, those of you who know me well know right away, like I fall into this side. Kind of the beat myself up, um, Give, you know, that's just me. That's where I struggle with this issue. And on either side, the cool thing about the gospel, see, to have humility then is to, to root your identity in the gospel, to know your place. And the gospel enables the proud person on this side of the spectrum with their superiority to become humble. But the gospel also enables us, uh, those who are proud in terms of uh, just a low self-image to become bold. And the gospel is the only thing that simultaneously allows us to be humble, knowing that we sin and we're messed up and just as faulty and sinful as anyone else. And it also enables us to be bold at the same time, knowing our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and not in our own actions or our past or anything else but Jesus. Do you see that? Bold and humble. And only the gospel allows that. So we're going to see how this works out, but the gospel is the only thing that cures pride. Uh, 
And it, it kind of comes down to this issue. We've talked about this before, this issue of identity versus activity. When I say gospel identity, what do I mean? Well, it means who you are in Jesus Christ. Do you know, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, there's all kinds of statements in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, that describe who you are. At the moment of trusting Jesus, you're clean. Whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you're clean. You're a saint. You're a saint who still sins, but your, your primary identity is no longer as a sinner, but as a saint. You're, you're accepted. You're no longer an outsider, but an insider. You're adopted into God's family. You're no longer uh, somebody who's orphaned and a child of God's wrath, but you're a child of the king. And Jesus is your big brother. And you have a brand new identity, and that's how God sees you. Now, the, the problem is a lot of times we find our identity not in who Jesus says we are, but in our activity and what we do. And that's the lie of religion. See, theologically, these terms are ontology, who you are, and economy, what you do, who I am and what I do. And the big question of the day is, does uh, my activity determine my identity? In other words, does what I do determine who I am? Or is it the other way around that my identity determines my activity, that who I am determines what I do? I've, I've thought about this a lot over the last few weeks, right? We've gone back to Genesis in chapter one. And uh, what, is, what does God say about his creation of Adam and Eve? He says, let us create man and woman in our image, in our likeness. And so in his likeness, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then what happens in chapter three? Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and uh, nosing around and he goes to Eve and he's like, hey, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree? And she's like, no, he just said this one tree and if we eat of it, we'll die. And he says, you won't die. You won't die. In fact, if you eat of it, you'll become like him. That's what he's scared about. In other words, the lie was that her activity in eating of the tree would make her like God, would give her a new identity. And do you know that lie persist today. Most of our addictions, most of our pain, most of our sin, if not all of it, is rooted back in this lie that if I do this, somehow then I'll find favor with God or with other people and I'll achieve this identity. The problem is, is though that that's not the truth. It's a lie. It's what religion teaches. It's what the world teaches. It's what social media teaches. That's why we all lie on social media. We take pictures that don't make us look as fat as we really are, right? Like that's, that's what it's about. And so, or else we untag ourselves if they do. And then so your identity is what you receive though. See, Adam and Eve received their identity. God created them in his likeness and he gave them an activity to go do based on who they were. He said, now be fruitful, go multiply, fill the earth. What Jesus does on the cross, friends, is he, he restores that identity. Instead of you always chasing after an identity, he gives it to you. You don't receive, you don't achieve it, you receive it. And then from that new identity in Jesus Christ, Paul says it's, you're a new creation. The Bible uses language, it's like you're born again. A brand new life, a brand new identity. Now go live that out and be who you are. Quit trying to, to earn an identity. See, religion tells you, go do all of these things to earn God's favor. The gospel says, this is who you are, all because of Jesus. Now go live like it. 
conceit buys into the lie of religion that uh, I'm comparing myself to others. So if I'm feeling superior, I have to prove it to prove my identity. If I'm feeling inferior in my pride, I have to, to prove that I'm not worthy to achieve that identity. The reality is, no, no, your gospel identity uh, is who you are in Christ, and it allows you to be both humble, knowing that you've sinned, but also be bold, knowing you're a child of the king. And you need that to not be conceited to move forward in the instructions that Paul gives in chapter six. So we're gonna move through these quickly, but let's turn now to chapter six. When you get into chapter six, uh, it occurred to me, these 10 verses really kind of outline the beginning of our mission statement. Do you know our mission statement? If you don't know it, you can read it with me on the screen. We are sent, why don't you read it with me? We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. Friends, you're sent. You're sent just like a missionary. Yeah, sure, Margo's going to California, so that makes her super spiritual, right, Margo? No. It, it makes her obedient. You've been sent to Milford or to Syracuse or uh, to Warsaw or New Paris or Napanee or wherever it is that you are. You've been sent there. And you've been sent by God with a mission. And that mission is to love people and then as you have opportunity, invite them to follow Jesus with you. Well, Paul says that when you know your identity, when you know who you are, you live it out. When you know uh, that your gospel identity, you live it out and you go and you love people. When you're conceited, you can't do that. But when you know who you are, you do. So let's look at, at what we should do then. Paul, Paul's going to list four groups of people that we're sent to love as I understand the text here in Galatians chapter six. So first off, uh, we're sent to love those who have sinned. We're sent to love those who have sinned. Look at verse one of chapter six. After he tells us not to be conceited, um, in other words, to, to root our identity in Jesus, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Uh, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, uh, caught might mean, uh, it could mean a couple different things. It could mean somebody who's, who's found out in their sin. It could mean somebody who's caught like in a trap and they just, they can't escape it. They're, they're addicted, they're fill in the blank. But whoever they are, Paul says, brothers, if, if anyone, meaning if anyone among you is caught in any sin, in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is those who live by the spirit, those who know their gospel identity, those who know who they are in Jesus. He's not referring to some super spiritual group of people. He's referring to everybody who's living out who they are in Christ. Uh, Ordinary Christians, if you follow the desires of the Spirit, this is what you will do. You're or her in a spirit of gentleness. See, the, the goal in loving someone who has sinned is for their restoration, for them to be made whole. Not to ostracize them, not to cast them out forever. Sometimes there's a season of that so that they would know the gravity of their sin. But that's not the heart of the gospel. Imagine if that's what Jesus did. If the moment you sinned after trusting him, a wall went up. 
and he just shunned you and pushed you away, never to speak to, never to love you. Just, you know what, you screwed up, you're gone, you're done. We'd have an empty church, wouldn't we? Or at least a bunch of people wasting their time. <laughs> See, the, we're sent to love people with, with the heart and the goal of restoration. You know, sometimes I, I hear people say, well, yeah, you know, restoring a relationship, Matthew 18, Matthew 18. Yeah, that's where Jesus lays out what's known as church discipline. But here's the thing. If you, ever, if you read through Matthew chapter 18, here's what you're going to notice. The majority of that is one-on-one relationships, confronting one another with love and with truth and with grace. And the only time it comes up in front of everyone is if after multiple, multiple times the person is continually unrepentant. And it's not to like make a fool of them or to, to shame them. It's to restore them. It's for them to understand the true gravity of what they've done and the ways that they've sinned so that they would know the true gravity of Jesus' grace and love for them. We get to be his hands and feet to to show love to those who have sinned. We're sent to love those who have sinned. And and look, we're to do that with with a spirit of gentleness. Back to the whole conceited issue, right? The one who's, uh, who's superior and has the big ego. You know how they confront in their pride? Or any of us, I shouldn't say they, I should say us when we're this way because we all can be this way. Do you know how we confront in our pride? We look down on people and say, man, you screwed up. I can't believe you did that. I would never do that. And then you think that to yourself. Maybe you tell other people that. Then on this side, you've got people maybe more like, again, like my temperament of going, "Um, man, I really love them. I don't have the courage to go confront them. You see it? And both are self-absorbed, worrying about what that person thinks of you and comparing that person to you. When in reality, we should be humble going, you know what, I need to be gentle because, and Paul says it right here, lest I sin as well, knowing that I could sin too in the same way, one bad choice, but also bold uh, to speak the truth in love and with gentleness. And so verse 26 goes with chapter six. It tells us how to do this, how to love someone who has sinned. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This was always a verse when I became a Christian reading through the Bible. I read this verse and I thought, that's strange. What's what's he talking about? I think the heart of what Paul's getting at here is that uh, if you're conceited, you're not going to think that you're capable of a similar or equal sin of the one that you go to confront. And if you feel that you're above the person or that you're below them somehow, your air of superiority or inferiority will come through and it'll destroy people, not restore them. And so uh, knowing that, but by the grace of God, that's me. And if that was me, I need somebody to speak the truth to me in love and in gentleness. And I could make that same choice. So I have no right to just lord it over them. But at the same time, I have to lovingly restore them. Do you see that? And you can't do that when you have a heart of conceit full of pride. So you need to root your identity in Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's keep going. There's a second group of people that Paul tells us we're sent to love. We're sent to love those who are burdened. Look at verse two. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I thought Paul was talking, you know, preaching this whole gospel or this whole letter against the law. What's he talking about now? Law of Christ. Uh, Do you ever wonder what that means? Law of Christ? Uh, If you turn over to Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Pharisees were confronting Jesus And uh, when they heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, who was a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So it's not really to get an answer, but it's to test him and to trap him. And they're like, "Uh, hey, teacher, what do you think is the greatest of all the commandments in the law? And do you know in the Old Testament there's 613 commands in the law? And they're trying to trap Jesus. So in his back pocket, like a good lawyer, he's got a defense argument, right? And he knows if Jesus mentions this one, this one, or this one, he's got these five that he can pull out of his pocket and say, well, what about these? And vice versa. And so Jesus just, he shuts the guy up in a hurry. He says, actually, uh, the greatest commandment is this. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commands, if you fulfill those two commands, you'll fulfill the whole law. The whole rest of the law rests on these two. So when you say, what is the law of Christ? It's his command here, I believe, in, uh, in Matthew 22, the great commandment to love God and to love others. So Paul says, if you help bear someone else's burdens, you're fulfilling the law that Jesus laid out, which is really simple. Love God and love people. Love Jesus and love your neighbor. And when you bear someone else's burdens, you're doing that. You're fulfilling that law. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something, the guy over here who's conceited, right? And proud in a, in a superior way, when really he's nothing, deceives himself. We have to humble ourselves and bear one another's burdens. But let each one then test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, it won't be in uh, either me lording it over somebody or or in uh, serving someone and finding pride in that, but it'll be in the work of the Holy Spirit in me. For each will have to bear his own load. See, Paul talks about two things here, burdens and loads. A burden is something that's excessively great that somebody has to carry, often for a short period of time, sometimes for a long period of time, but generally they're temporal in nature. And people have a burden. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Uh, Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's a financial ruin. Or whatever that is, a a heavy and deep burden. And Paul says, listen, uh, that that type of burden, the the Greek text used here, it's it's talking about a burden that's too heavy for one person to carry by themselves. And if you're really going to love people, if you're sent to love them, when you see those who are burdened with with a load that's way too heavy for them, come along with them and bear it with them. Now, that doesn't mean you take it from them and you make it all your burden and you make them, you know, like this weird codependency thing going on. It means you help them. You bear it with them. Help them bear their burdens. Walk with them through life. Listen, that's what 110 community groups are for, right? Right? If you're not in a 110 group and uh, you're like, I got this burden, nobody cares for me, nobody calls me, nobody visits, you kind of got to step out here a little bit, be vulnerable, get connected so that you can be loved in that way. And if, if you see others who need to get connected, step out and love them and draw them in. But we're sent, friends, to love 
others and love those who are burdened. But look at verse five. He says, each will have to bear his own load. There's also those certain responsibilities, uh, things that each of us have as individuals that we just have to bear that aren't burdens. Some people's loads are heavier than others. And you should encourage them and come alongside them, but a burden you kind of take on your shoulder and you help carry for a while. A load you just come along and encourage and, and help, but you don't dare take it from them because that's their personal responsibility before the Lord. Well, we're sent to love a third group of people. And I'm just going to say right up front, this one's, um, let's be honest. Uh, it's a little awkward for me to stand up here and teach, right? Because here's the third group. You're sent to love those who lead and teach. Because, you know, in the next few verses here, the reason it's awkward is Paul's basically telling you and telling me to pay our leaders to, to care for our pastors well. Now, I just got done talking about how, uh, you know, we don't want to be proud and, and superior, but we don't want to be uh, a coward and envious, so we need to be humble and bold. So I'm going to attempt to do both, right? To be humble in this, but also be bold and teach what God's word says. He says, let the one who is taught the word... That would be those who are being taught, share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul says that uh, in most of his letters, he makes a comment along these lines. In Timothy, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double pay, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. 1 Corinthians 9.11 says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you as well? Now, it was important for Paul to teach these things in the early church because the concept of voluntary giving really wasn't uh, present as it related to the church. There was actually temple tax. So instead of people giving voluntarily to provide for God's servants, for leaders in the church who taught and led, um, Jews were taxed for the support of their priests. And the Gentiles paid fees and they made vows to sustain their religions. The admonition that a teacher who shares the good things of the word of God then a believer is to reciprocate good things in a material way to them. Now let me just say this as I say that, right? God commands us to do that. And as a church, you, you do well by that toward me. And I believe towards Kirk and Dan. And I've never felt like um, I have friends who, uh, man, they're just, they're skimping by and they have people in their church who, um, I don't want to labor this too long, but uh, people in their church who, who uh, really lord it over them and uh, feel like if, if anybody ought to sacrifice, it ought to be the pastor. He ought to live a life pretty much of poverty and really demonstrate what that looks like to us. It's really not what the Bible says. It says to, to pay your pastors, to pay your leaders well, especially those who preach and teach the word. And so in saying that, I want to encourage you because as a church, you're doing that well. And I feel encouraged. And I, uh, at the same time, I don't want us to ever fall into that mindset because I won't be the pastor here forever. You won't be the only people in our church forever, God willing, right? If I'm the only one who's ever here, that means our church dies at some point. That's not me saying I'm going somewhere. I'm just saying like, I, if I'm the last one, 
we blew it. <laughs> we want this thing to live until Jesus comes back, right? And so we never want to fall into that trap, but we want to obey what Paul says here. And these next verses relate back to this. He says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked for whoever sows, whatever, whatever one sows, that also will he reap. He talks about that as well in Second Corinthians 9, verse 6. But for the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, who walks with the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, of doing what's right, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Amen? All right, number four. We're sent to love all people. We're sent to love all people. Look at verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Who's that include? Everyone. That includes the people you hate. <laughs> it includes the people you never want to be around or never speak to again. If you have opportunity, Paul says we're to do good to them. That's a hard pill to swallow. Would you agree? Let's just be honest. Can I be frank with you? Like there's people we don't feel like doing good to. And just because I'm a pastor and I have that title in front of my name, that doesn't mean I'm that human and I don't have some of those issues as well. But Paul says, listen, as you have opportunity, don't be proud, don't be conceited, but do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to one another, loving one another, because just like Jesus said, the world will know you're Christians by your love for one another. Amen? We're sent to love people, friends. And so uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And uh, we're going to call it a morning. And uh, go try to live these things out this week. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And um, Lord, it's, it's our nature and our sinfulness to be prideful, to be conceited, to... Uh, either see ourselves as superior to other people or uh, to wrongly think too much of ourselves and see ourselves as being inferior to others as well. Both are pride. Both are conceit and are wrong. Jesus, instead, help us to be humble, to know that we too have sinned and we deserve uh, hell, but you've given us your grace. At the same time, to be bold, uh, to be bold then in our identity, Jesus, and who you've declared us to be. And to live these things out, to love those who've sinned, to love those with burdens, to uh, love and care for those who lead and teach, and to love everyone. We're sent to love them and invite them to follow Jesus. Father, I pray for those uh, who might hear my voice today who've never trusted you, who've never uh, become a Christian. Uh, today might be the day that they surrender their heart to you and they choose to put their faith, Jesus, in you and in what you've done for them on the cross. And that today they would cross that line and become your child. If that's you, uh, it's really simple. It's just acknowledging in prayer before God that you're a sinner in need of his grace. Uh, repenting of your sin and, and just asking for Jesus to be your savior. If you wanna talk more about that, come talk to me after the service today. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.